There are some stories in the New Testament um, that anchor our thoughts as we work through the kind of passages we're dealing with. Um, There's the story of the Good Samaritan when Jesus is asked by a person who wants to justify themselves in the eyes of God and who who wants to limit the amount of the amount of good they are obligated to perform. They ask Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor, right? So instead, Jesus answers a different question. They want to know who their neighbor is so they can limit the amount of energy they have to invest in Jesus' statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So in order to protect themselves from this sweeping statement, love your neighbor as yourself, they say to Jesus, who is your neighbor? And as we know from the story, Jesus just refuses to answer that question. And instead he answers the question of how do neighbors act, right? And we have this Good Samaritan story, neighbors care for anyone they encounter. And then there's this story of the prodigal son. Son, not really a kid, young adult. Um, He leaves home, squanders the wealth of the family. But when he comes to himself, when he recognizes what he's done, he returns humbly back to home where he meets up with Surprisingly, not judgment, but acceptance. We expect judgment. We don't get judgment. We get acceptance. Accepting love. And though we call the story the prodigal son story, it's probably more appropriately the amazing love of the father for his children. And we're told by Jesus, this is how parents behave. And we always thought the story was about the kids. And so we're talking about the fact through these series of messages of trying to understand what our story is and understanding the idea that our practices shape our story and shape our lives. And the danger of this conversation has always been that we might use these kinds of listings of practices to create a new legalism. But there is a difference between practices we embrace because of who we are and what we want to become and regulations we impose on others and use as a judgment to determine the worth of another individual or regulations we use to judge ourselves to determine whether we are godly or not. The first is a discipline, the second is a legalism. Here's a sad fact, and this is basic to our discussion, I think. 
there are going to be casualties among our children to this culture. The culture is going to win sometimes. And if we are so glued to our disciplines that we miss the story of the prodigal son and we miss the story of the good Samaritan, we will end up treating our children worse than strangers. The foundation of all that these sermons stand upon is the foundation of the overwhelming love of God for us that calls us forward into new freedoms which are unlocked by staying connected to this amazing God that we serve. So you can see there's a difference between the times we are training our children when disciplines are shaping them and the times after we've released our children and the disciplines are now shaping just us. The disciplines are necessary. Remember we're having this discussion to begin with because Peter told us in 2 Peter 1 these things. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. That's where this all starts, Second Peter 1 verse 3. I think I have to digress a little further today and talk a smidge about Christian anthropology. You say, oh, this sounds exciting. Um, Christian anthropology, anthropology is just the study of humans, of humanity, of men and women, and we as Christians believe some things about how we're constituted that are important when we figure out what we believe about ourselves. For, for many years, Christian theology was greatly influenced by Greek philosophy, which taught that humans are comprised of a, a soul or spirit, the conscious part of us, and a physical body. And this, this basic philosophy, philosophy was made to do service to many different varieties of belief. Many different folks sort of grabbed onto this notion and sort of twisted it to fit their particular ideas. The Gnostic was one group of early thinkers around the time of Christ who believed that everything physical was bad because of the base desires and instincts attached to the physical flesh and that the spirit was good and consequently, we were sort of divided among ourselves. Bad flesh material, good spirit. Some folks taught then that you had to 
discipline the body so that it could live in consistency with the thoughts of the mind. Other thoughts, other folks thought, there's no way to discipline the body. So just ignore it and let it do what it wants. You're not accountable for the actions of your body anyway. Well, that's a sub-Christian thought process. This idea of a dualism, this part body, part mind, reaches into many cultures. The belief in reincarnation is the belief that at death, the body and the mind are separate, and this mind somehow comes back and gets inserted in some different life or being and is reborn again. That's not a Christian philosophy, but it's based on this same kind of dualism of spirit and body type thing. Uh, there are some theologies that talk about the wheel of life, and if you do well, you advance to a higher stating on your next time around. If you do poorly, you go back and try to have to relearn some lessons in a different expression, and so um, the spirit lives on in different bodies. Sometimes even Christians talk about this dualism, perhaps in a more pronounced way than scripture actually permits. We think about our spirit going up to be in the presence of Jesus when we die, and our body crumbling away, and we seek to be liberated from the body so that our spirit can live forever with Jesus, but you have to remember that when we rehearse the creed, we talk about something a little different. We talk about the resurrection of the body, don't we? And, and in the Jewish way of thinking about anthropology, there wasn't this separation. The two felt parts of ourselves were just one thing. Spirit and body came together and made this thing called the living soul. This is what we are. And if you take either part away, you don't have a human being anymore. And so you have to, in Christian thought, wait for the resurrection of the body until you are something again. No matter how you work around this this Greek influence on Christian theology. Um, we learned way back in the book of Genesis that we were created by God, that he blew his spirit into our bodies that were dust, that we became living beings at that time, and our bodies were good. That was the word he utters at the end of the sixth day, right? He saw all that he made, and he said, it's good. The Bible doesn't so much concern itself with scientific descriptions about our composition. We're told what will happen, not how it happens. Much like a caterpillar enters into a chrysalis and becomes a butterfly, there's a transition that takes. The New Testament writers talk about this with lots of different images. Unless a seed falls into the ground and gives its life away, it can't germinate 
to grow into a new plant. That's an analogy that Paul uses. A seed releases itself to the earth and something new grows. Somehow this immortal has to share off, shed off that which is mortal of us so that we can receive the immortality which is the God's gift of us. How that exactly happens, we're now in a vocabulary that's over our heads because we don't know how God does the work that only he can do. We just know what his promises are, right? We have these very sure, these very precious, these very great promises that tell us that the dead in Christ will live. That precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. That he's prepared a continuing place for us, a dwelling place for us. And so these bodies we've been given are good. And because of that, this understanding that our bodies are good sets the stage to, to just anchor our understanding that we're good. We're good. And even though our lives have been twisted by sin, well, the author of Romans tells us that it will all be redeemed by the grace of God. This twist can be removed. It can be cleansed. We can live as sons and daughters of God, the one who gave us his spirit as a down payment. Remember these words from Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait patiently for it. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. The picture that Paul paints is consistent with a more Jewish understanding of anthropology. We are this one thing, a living soul that is combination spirit and body, and when the component parts can no longer support life, then we have an eternal house in heaven. All of these things, all these understandings highlight this foundational fact that these bodies of ours are the gift of God to us, that they are good and that they deserve care. Not just a good bit of exercise, but paying attention to the avoidance of contamination, addiction, and anything that doesn't take the gift seriously. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? Do you not know that your body is at the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God, 
You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I think it would do a good, it would be a good exercise for all of us during Lent to spend one full day thinking about that little snippet of a verse. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. For those of us who want to determine our right to our rugged American individualism, I would say, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. To those of you who are determined stubbornly to get your own way as often as possible, I would say to you, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. For you who say, that's just my Scottish heritage, I'm stubbornly independent and I always speak my mind, I would say to you, you are not your own you were bought with a price. For those of you who say to me, well, I earned this money by the sweat of my brow and I have a right to spend it any way I choose, I will say to you, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. How deep into your habits and practices does the idea that you are not your own, you were bought with a price, really sink. Is there evidence of this truth in your life? That you actually live as if you believed that you were not your own? That you believe that anybody else has a claim on your behavior? One of my favorite stories is the night that Nancy and I were at Plymouth, Michigan, and she was playing an offertory on our French horn. And in the middle of it, poor John and Greg, who were left alone in the pew. Parents, you shouldn't do that to your kids, leave them alone in the pew. I'm on the platform, Nancy's playing, John and Greg are sitting there, I don't know. John's five, Greg is three, maybe. And John does something, bless him, who knows what it is. And Greg stands up on the chairs, and walks over and just starts pounding him, just pounding him in public. And Greg, you know, he's relentless and John is trying to not get hit and John's old enough to know that this is trouble already because he understands how to behave in church and Greg is just pounding on him. And finally I catch the eye of a little old lady who's seating at the other end of the row and she walks over and puts her hand gently on Greg's shoulder and he turns around and says, you are not the boss of me! (laughs) How old do you have to get before you understand that you're not your own? That someone is the boss of you? How old do you have to get in the family of God to realize you've been bought with a price? That your bodies don't belong to you, that you are treasure 
gifted by God. So you get a birthday gift, you open it up, and you throw it to the ground, smashing it because it's not what you wanted or doesn't operate the way you hope. No, if you, if you receive a gift, you treasure it and you care for it, right? You take care of what's been entrusted to you. Why do we care for our bodies? We believe that our bodies are good and that they are gifts to us from God and we believe that the Holy Spirit actually dwells in them. That means we cherish the gift by caring for it. I don't think it takes a lot of stretching to stretch this idea of care for our bodies to care of the world. Both are similar gifts. Why do we care for the world around us? We believe that the earth was created to provide a place for us to live, love, and work. And therefore we must cherish it as God's good gift to us by caring for it. Creation is God's good gift to us. The heavens are telling, the heavens declare the glory of God. The evidence of the creator leaks through all of the creation. And we're instructed to take dominion over the earth, which initially meant working the ground. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Isn't it interesting that work has always been an expression of the blessing of God for us? Work is good too. For those of you who believe that life is really comprised of avoiding work, the truth of the matter is work is God's gift to us. Working is sacred at a significant level. So our purpose is to work the garden and to care for the garden. This is what uh, one particular gentleman says about the passage. A consequence we see in Genesis of being created in God's image is that we are to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of all this. He says, exercising royal dominion over the earth as God's representative is the basic purpose for which man was created. Man is appointed king over creation, responsible to God, who is the ultimate king, and as such, expected to manage, develop, and care for this creation, the task to include actual physical work, our work then, in God's image, begins with faithfully representing the God who gave us the task. So in caring for the gift of creation, we have to care for it while bearing the image of God. 
so that his character should be able to be reflected in the way we care for and steward the earth. As Christians, we understand we are stewards of the earth. The earth is not ours. The earth belongs to God. Stewards treat the earth in ways that are consistent with what we know about God. And the earth, along with all creation, is destined for redemption. Why would God God bother to work for the redemption of something he didn't love? I think when you get right down to it, we Christians ought to be on the forefront of the ecology movement. We are caring for the gift that God gave us in a manner that represents his affection for the earth that he made. So let's talk on a very basic level. Recycling matters to us. Using resources wisely and responsibly matters to us. Questions of sustainability matter to us. Clean water matters to us. Reducing our consumption matters to us. Hold your breath. I don't have the stomach to talk about global warming today because if I do, I'm afraid some of you will jump onto a political bandwagon so quickly you won't hear anything I say for the rest of the day. But hear this. We Christians choose to do what is good for the planet and for our neighbors because the creation is God's gift to us. And we are stewards of it and we care for it after the manner we believe God would care for it. So you can inject that truth into whatever political stance you take, as long as you understand that God's gift to us is good, and that you and I are responsible, required to care for it. Why do we care for the world around us? because we believe that the earth was created to provide a place for us to live, love, and work. And therefore, we must cherish it as God's good gift to us. These are some of the disciplines that shape us. You understand that no list is comprehensive that we spend our lives listening for the voice of the Spirit and embracing the practices that he invites us to embrace, right? This list that we've discussed, the list that was on these blue cards, the list that is printed in your bulletin is a starting place that helps us to find a story, the narrative of who we are, so that when we lose our way, when we forget why we do what we do, we have We have some kind of understanding that brings back to mind who we are in Christ, why we do what we do, because it is not enough just to transmit the practices. We must transmit the reasons, the meaning, the purpose for the traditions that we embrace. Would you hear the practices once more? Why do we pray? To acknowledge before God our humble reliance on him, to worship and express love and thanks to him, to bring before him the needs of ourselves and others and to listen to him for direction and correction. Why do we read the Bible? 
to learn about who God is, to understand ourselves and the world around us, to discover God's purposes for us, and to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit? Why do we attend church every week? To witness the fact that we belong to God, to worship God, to stay connected to and care for the family that God has given us, and to be encouraged to participate in God's mission in the world according to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Why do we say grace before meals? To humbly demonstrate our gratitude to God for providing all that we need. Why do we celebrate Christian holidays? To keep our lives rooted in the story of Jesus so that his life shapes us and provides the goal for our transformation. Why do we care for others in the church? Because the cleansing blood of Jesus makes us actual family members. The people around us in the church are given to us for our growth, our encouragement, our service partners, and as objects of our affection and support. Why do we care for the needs of those around us? Because we have received the love and mercy of God, we honor God by expressing his love for others on his behalf. Why do we receive the sacraments? We receive the sacraments to receive the grace that God gives us to be able to live as his representatives. Why are we kind to one another? Because Jesus was kind and he is our example. Why are we careful about our language? We don't want to injure others because our goal is to be like Jesus who is continually expressing the love God has for all his people. Why do we avoid violent behavior? Jesus taught us that good conquers evil and that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Violence and evil are not the pathways that Christians take because we serve a Messiah who would rather be crucified than injure any of his people. Why do we care for our bodies? We believe that our bodies are good and they are gifts to us from God. We believe that the Holy Spirit actually dwells within us. That means we cherish the gift by caring for it. Why do we care for the world around us? We believe that the earth was created to provide a place for us to live, love, and work. And therefore, we must cherish it as God's good gift to us by caring for it. These are some of the essential practices of Christians who desire to be formed by the Spirit of God. These are essential ways we stay linked and name God present day by day in our lives. I would encourage you to talk with your family and see if there are other things the Spirit might call you to. The story of the history of the church has been God calling to particular groups of people in particular times to embrace practices that witness to his grace, express hospitality, and love others. What might the Spirit be saying to us? This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. 
One of the practices we discussed this morning was the practice of the sacraments. When I think of the sacraments, I think of communion and baptism. I think we have almost sacraments in scripture in tithing and anointing. Other expressions of the church have considered things like ordination and marriage and last rites as sacraments as well. But we all agree that receiving this meal is one of the essential sacraments of the Christian faith. In the Sunday school class that I teach this morning, we were reading um, about Christian practices of hospitality. And the author suggested that these two sacraments are expressions of God's hospitality for us. That in baptism, God says, come on in, there's plenty of room for you. And in communion he says, eat, eat, I've prepared this food just for you. Not bad. Rick wants us to say manja, manja. He's prepared this just for you. He's given his life that you might live. So this morning as we receive the sacrament, all who desire to follow Jesus are welcome to join us. And I pray that you will eat to your soul's refreshment and joy. But those who are going to assist me, come at this time and take your places as we begin the communion ritual. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, for the goodness and love which you have made known to us in creation, in the calling of Israel to be your people, and in your spoken word through the prophets. Above all, in the word made flesh, Jesus, your son. You sent him to be incarnate from the Virgin Mary, to be the savior and redeemer of the world. In him you have delivered us from evil and made us worthy to stand before you. In him you have brought us out of error into truth, out of sin into righteousness, out of death into life. Therefore we rejoice together with all creation and sing this song of praise. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty God in three persons blessed Trinity on the night before he died for us our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and when he had given thanks to you he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said take eat this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and said, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Let us pray.
Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this juice, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world, redeemed by Christ's blood. May your spirit sanctify us that we might be one, united in mission, and committed to loving God and neighbor with all that we are. Amen. Eat, eat, he made this specially for you. Body of Christ, the blood, the gifts of God for the people of God. Jesus, when you created us, you blew the breath of your spirit into our mortal bodies and made something completely new. You gave us life. And though through time we have twisted and become self-absorbed, you call us back and invite us into your family again where you straighten us out Renew us and make us new creatures again. All that we are is because of your work in us. And so we thank you for your incredible and hospitable gifts to us, continually showered on us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live as individuals who feel and know your favor and blessing, to live out of the abundance of your gifts for us, to live in confidence because you are ours and we are yours. May our lives be full because of the gifts we've received from you. And now by the grace of God, may you live each of your days reflecting his glory. Amen.